Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today we have Vidal Sassoon's their leadership team. We have Patrick Lindqvist, who uh, you've heard before. He was the former uh, co-chief of innovation at the city of Helsingborg. And now he's running and building a senior team of IT consultants at CGI. Gary Mitchell, he helps SMEs come together to build business plans for investment. He has 32 years in uh, experience in driving transformation and strategy. And one of my favorite things that Gary ever did was tell the board of Dixons, you're just a fucking shop. So you're in for a bit of a treat today. Uh, Gary, Patrick, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Excellent. So without further ado, today we're going to be talking about wicked problems and what they are, what they're not. We're going to be looking at how you can start to tackle them. But let's first of all define wicked problems. So, Gary, can we kick off with you? In your experience, what is a wicked problem? When I hear that phrase, what comes to mind, there's two things. Firstly, is the when I'm building strategy with teams, the aim of any strategy is to address a wicked problem of your customers. So finding out and understanding what the customer's wicked problem is and how you can build a solution or provide a solution or participate in a solution to that wicked problem is tremendously important. The second thing is the digital transformation. There's a lot of detail around digital, but really, if you're going to undertake transformation, you ought to be solving a wicked problem to justify the huge cost, effort, and disruption of digital transformation. So what's the difference then between a critical problem, Patrick, and a wicked problem? This is the thing, isn't it? The reason I got interested in this term, the wicked problem, was that it was explained to me in terms of different types of problems and that identifying wicked problem is a, is a very important management objective. Um, a critical problem would be the type of problem that just commands an answer of you. You know, the, the, the oh no, the building is burning. What do we do? Well, we, you know, get out of the building, call the fire department. It's just action oriented. And uh, wicked problems, is, as uh, Gary was getting us into, are far more complex and the leadership role there would rather be managing a process, asking questions. As you said, what uh, if you're moving into a digital transformation, what how would you motivate that in terms of the value you create for your customer? Or what are the problems we are solved? Why, why can't we solve these without doing a digital transformation? I mean, these are difficult questions. And normally what you'll find is there is no one single uh, correct answer. Whereas if the building is burning, yes, there are a few very obvious answers and everybody will agree. If you move up the, the chain towards the wicked problems, you'll find that everybody will contribute their views. Nobody will agree to anybody else's view. And whatever you decide to do, somebody's going to be unhappy. And uh, next week, when you sit down around the table, you'll find that the solved problem hasn't really been solved. It's just taken on a new form. And there you go again. Well, in my experience, wicked problems tend to be complex, multidimensional. There are multiple stakeholders. The rules differ as you go. The stakeholders change their minds. There are no perfect solutions. Everything that you try first normally fails. And hopefully it's a series of non-fatal experiments that lead to uh, some form of improvement. It's iterative. And I think one of the big challenges that I face 
day to day in my work is where people have tinkered at the edges. They they found they they found an equilibrium in their imperfect solution, and then they notice the symptoms, so they throw a point solution at it, and that creates a disequilibrium. And if they do that enough, then it destabilizes the system. And so often I see people throwing point solution after point solution without any alignment or coordination. Um, and part of this, I think, comes down to lack of cooperation. So yeah, I, like, I like that because it is very much about alignment. Within a management team or in an organization on any level, you need to align around what problems need to be solved quickly, what solved problems maybe there need management, but specifically, what are these really tough burning topics where we need to uh, facilitate a continuous dialogue, which is, I mean, why we have management teams, isn't it? From the start, I would assume, I mean, you know, we don't just get together every three weeks to look at the numbers and clap each other on the backs and then yell a bit and then leave. We should be, you know, that should be where we are having that, that dialogue. And I, th I think I was saying to you some while back, Marcus, to me, this, this all became very clear when I was, I was like two or three years into a, my position as CIO at uh, Skåne Trafik, and it's a public transport authority of Southern Sweden. And I'd been to some training session, two or three days, and they taught us the uh, Keith Grint model, the, his way of defining problems and uh, how he explains the wicked problem. And I came back on Monday morning, and I was I was holding a management team meeting with my with my IT department, and we were checking in. And I, and I, as we as the conversation sort of developed, I realized people are getting all engaged in problems that I don't really think are problems. And, and all of a sudden, that model dawned on me, and I explained the uh, Peter Grint, uh, sorry Keith Grint's model with critical problems, tame problems, and then the wicked problems. And I drew three columns on the board and. And then I asked uh, my management team members to spend 10 minutes writing down all the problems they have on uh, post-it notes. And then they got up and they sort of posted them along the three columns and a disproportionate amount of notes ended up in the wicked problem column. And so when they'd written all their notes, I, I, I sort of looked, took, it, took these notes one after one and I challenged them. And I'd say, you know, okay, you have this note here, it's uh, in the wicked column. I actually think this is a critical problem. You need to make three calls to three different people. You need to do it by the end of business today and you'll iron that out. That is not, we should not be spending energy on this. You should not be spending any of this. And I could be quite tough there because I mean, this was a closed group. There were just five of us, right? It was me and, and the four departmental managers. So by the end of this session, there was only one note left in the wicked problem column. And that was actually interest, interesting, considering what you brought up, Gary. It was about the difficulties that come uh, when you manage an IT department and you, you sort of get a brief from, from business. And no matter how much time you spend getting to know your, your colleagues on, on the other side, there is always this sort of feeling that they're on the other side, right? So you have a brief and you develop something. And by the time you're supposed to be finished, you've sort of gone... 200% over the budget and it's not completely finished, but you throw the ball over to the other side and tell them now this is your problem. And that's sort of one of these incredibly difficult things about developing digital solutions in organizations that are not inherently digital, especially when, when we're talking about big old companies or public organizations that have sort of established uh, business models and management models and a culture 
that stems from the pre-digital age. It, it is not inherent to them to think in digital terms. Interestingly, uh, those insights and the work we did in that management team led to us beginning to understand uh, why the agile work method needs to be understood on a very high level before you start working with it. Because one of the big advantages of agile IT models, uh, government models, is that you do not divide business from IT. They become the one and they become the one and the same. And of course, this stems from very small organizations, especially startups, where you don't have huge organizations and models and different responsibilities. Everybody's on the same team. Uh, and I don't know how, how comfortable you are with these, this terminology, but basically the, the product owner in an agile team is half project manager and half the organizational, the business owner of that solution. So all the decisions that are made within the context of the project or, or the line organization are, are made by the one and same team. So it's not like one IT team and one business team, it's one team. And another interesting concept that is often found in small agile organizations is that they don't, they don't, don't differentiate between the development of something and the governance of that solution once it's finished. It's always the same. It's the same team. In, in, in computer coding, they call this DevOps. So it's the same team that sort of managed the solution that also then developed the solution. This brings other drawbacks, of course. It's more difficult to scale. And the, I mean, there are lots of, nothing is ever perfect. But I think one interesting thing about those models is that it, it forces you to always take responsibility both for how well you develop something and how well you then manage it and how that creates value from a business perspective. But this is, uh, sorry, long, long, long um, monologue from, from me on that. Did I bore you again? I, I'm, I'm still trying to get to grips with how people can recognize the difference between a wicked problem and a tame problem, because the tame problems appear to be ones that are day-to-day, -day, but are often conflated. So I'm curious about what you did to cut through the noise and the emotion to be able to discern down to the one wicked problem. I actually think this... Uh transforming that management model into a workshop, which was just a spur of a moment thing, and I'm sure many others have done it before me, but that actually forced us as a group to process our thoughts and the things that were worrying, worrying us. And together as a collective brain, we, this is how I see it anyway, I hope they, I hope they agree. <laughs> I think we together sort of created a landscape where we helped each other to understand how we could identify what was really bugging us as just a, a simple critical problem and how something else that was also bugging us just relax, trust the system there. We've done this before. There are management processes for this. Trust them. And even if you don't really trust them, you need to, because we can't solve everything. We have to put our attention at those one or two really, really difficult uh, things. Can I butt in here? Because I'm, I really like those three columns, Patrick, and I'm sad that I hadn't discovered it until today. But the, so I just described the three columns because uh, I think you might be referencing stuff we talked about in the green room. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, so so the, the Keith Grint, he identifies three different types of manner of problems, and he also is very clear that it is a, a management priority to identify uh, which problems are which are 
critical and which are wicked. Now, critical problems are problems where you need to take command. As I said before, the example would be the building is burning. So, you know, get out of the building, call the fire department. And then the tame problems are more process problems, problems that you've seen before. They have been solved before. There are processes or rules or just let the already pre-existing solution for that problem solve the problem. Don't reinvent the wheel. And then wicked problems are the ones that we should be addressing, we should be paying attention to. And I think you defined them at the beginning of the meeting, Marcus. When I'm doing digital transformation and we're looking at the journey we're trying to transform, because that's my first point of entry, the customer journey is, right, where are the areas where we can materially impact this journey by changing something? My approach was not the three columns because I didn't know about them and I'm sad about that. But my approach was to take each of the areas where we could materially change something and make the group rank those areas in order of priority. Now, it kind of achieved the same thing or maybe, you know, you could do both is when you put... When you deal with problems in isolation, as, as Marcus says, you get point solutions. But if you put the problems together and then you try to rank them, you very quickly see the top three come out very, very quickly. And the top three always are significantly different in terms of impact. And, OK, they're com complex, but I think I see wicked problems as the ones having the most impact if we solve them. The ones below are the ones that, yeah, okay, we could solve those, but if we don't solve these top three, we are not transforming the business and therefore all this disruption is unnecessary and actually it could be terminal in the long run. Mm -hmm. And that's what I call a wicked problem, something that is worth doing, something that is, is we have to come together with around as a team. Otherwise, we won't be able to solve them. And the other problems are maybe functional problems that ought to be dealt with um, in the functions. Maybe they're quite important, but, um, you know, as Patrick said, there are probably processes that should be used to get them done, whereas wicked problems, we have to come together as a team. The outcomes and the prize is bigger. So I approached it by prioritization because I, I think the key point in both of these approaches is, is, is to get the problems out and then look at them all together and make a choice because you haven't got the investment or the bandwidth to tackle every problem in the business. And so you must make a choice. There's a wonderful resource that my friend Simon Bowen taught me, which is called the Iron Triangle. And you draw a triangle and on one side you write outcomes, another resources, and the other one time. And time is broken into deadline and duration, outcomes into tangibles and intangibles, and resources, financial and other. And what's really interesting is when you talk to somebody about what their priorities are, often they'll lead with the outcome and they'll talk about that. And as you dig a little bit deeper and you do the five whys, often what you find is that actually what they're talking about are the table stakes that everybody comes with. 
So then you have to dig a little bit deeper to get to the real job to be done and to really understand what they remark on. And often they remark on the intangibles, not the tangibles. And many sellers, because they go for the lazy why, they go for the manic how and the lazy why. So they're always trying to find a solution instead of trying to really understand the problem. Then when you start digging to try and find out where this priority lies and whether it's a deadline or it's a duration, more often than not, it's a duration, but they've set a deadline, which is notional. And then you can establish, is that important? And if it is, what are the consequences of missing that deadline? Because more often than not, your resources are tied up on the wrong end of the problem because of this panic urgency where people are conflating a critical or a tame problem into a wicked problem and making it a priority. And then you start looking at the resources. Well, financial is one aspect, but you've got people, you've got estates, you've got um, duplication, there's all sorts of stuff. And using the Iron Triangle as a diagnostic and prioritization tool, you can very quickly reach a consensus and alignment around what they actually need to do and what they can do. Because often, how often have you turned up to a meeting where we must do something about this and you have the same meeting two, three, four, five months in a row? When you talk about this and you talk about meetings, that, that what, what comes to my mind is where do these discussions take place in an organisation? From my perspective, they, they take place when you're trying to build strategy to an investment event deadline or there's a digital transformation. But in the, the grand scheme of things, when you're not doing any of those special things, I look at the interactions management have, when do they come together to actually talk about their wicked problems? And I can't find an interaction where they do it because people, <laughs> people come together every week to talk about the weekly shit, right? That's where you deal with the shit every week. Then you, you, you come together monthly to deal with the financial shit. So the operational shit is weekly, the financial shit is monthly, and the annual, the annual strategy stuff is just the high-level bollocks, right? <laughs> so, you know... Hey, shit, shit, bollocks, gossip. Yeah, shit, shit, <laughs> bollocks. And basically, I can't see, built into management process now, any place where people would come together or leadership would come together and actually do what we've just described is pull out all of the problems of all of the types and actually try and characterize, rank and characterize them. And that is an issue because it has to be an emergency before people consider coming together. Okay. There is no, there is no sort of business as usual way of doing this. And I think it hurts a lot of companies. Okay, well, we, we also have another series of underlying wicked problems that underpin this, which make it uh, quite a bit more complex. And it's that in the UK, there are 2.4 million accidental managers. These are people who woke up one morning, were patted on the back and told, congratulations, we just fired your idiot boss, you're now the idiot boss, off you go. And that's their runway. There was a study Sandler did in 2020 that concluded that only 6% of sales managers were fit for purpose. Certainly within technology, we have two generations of managers yeah. who have 
never yet had to make a profit. And now their venture capital and private equity firms are saying you have to collect cash or you're dumped. So in the midst of all of this, we have silos, leadership and management that are unprepared. You know, they're not willfully ignorant, but they are ignorant to a large degree. Yeah. They're not equipped. And now they're facing this tsunami of World War II and a half. We've got inflation. We've got supply chain issues. We've got issues with retention, churn. These are all real-life day-to-day critical problems, um, but they're all coming together. And what, what my concern is, the overload where you have a command and control management structure instead of one that dissipates that pressure and turns managers into a catalyst instead of a bottleneck. Your thoughts? When you talk about pressure and silos, and because I keep coming back to this idea that it is the dialogue that needs to happen. And as Gary says, it never happens because of shit, shit, bollocks. <laughs> Dissipating that pressure is... We've got the headline well, anyway. <laughs> but it's, it's not only about... Let's turn it around. For me, it is about establishing a dialogue where there is enough trust for everybody to actually say what's on their mind and they'll have lots there'll be lots of pressure and when you articulate that pressure those issues well some pressure will be released just by talking about it but if you can be helped to identify that what you are treating as a wicked problem is actually just a, a tame problem well that will release some pressure i mean because that's what happened to me when 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 i when I was sitting there listening to this model being explained to me, it was like the angels began to sing. And, and I, I really felt an incredible <laughs> relief. And when I came back, and I was thinking, I remember traveling back from there that so many things that had been haunting me for the first one or two years of my sort of first senior management position were things I just shouldn't even care about. You know, it's just, don't worry. I'll, I'll call somebody on Monday and solve it. Or no, we're not going to deal with that. I'm going to let HR's process or the process, uh, the controlling process, we'll take care of that. I don't, let's not even think about it. But th- th- um, this again, I think, speaks to the kind of environment in which managers are operating. Because I, I fundamentally believe that managers are the single biggest obstacle and also potentially the single biggest untapped resource to release creative capability within your organization. Because managers have an average of seven to eight people reporting to them. And teams form cultures, and the managers are the drivers of those cultures. Now, if you have an environment where a manager coaches, gives people their voice, encourages them to step forward and lead when it's their turn, where you're firm but fair, there's a challenge, high challenge, high support, a kind of environment, it's amazing what their teams can get done when all of their eyes are on the problem. But where the manager thinks that it's their job to try and solve problems and make decisions and do stuff, they become a hindrance. Yes, yes, it's, it's, uh, it's yeah. odd. And it's also what Keith Grint writes is that when you're managing wicked problems, it's all about facilitating a process and asking yeah. questions. And if you want to talk about creativity, or as you said uh, in our introductions, I, I did some time working with innovation. And if I were just to summarize what I learned, it's uh, keep management out of the way. That's the single most important thing you need to do in any organization that wants to achieve true innovation. 
And, and generally, in most organizations, especially bureaucratic organizations, people are promoted based on their explicit experience. So let's say, for instance, in a hospital, many of many in management positions will be doctors, which, uh, I mean, makes sense. But on the other hand, it also means that if you are a rising star, a young doctor, and you have ideas about how to do things differently, you're going to have to win over the sort of 30-year experience of the old doctor who is who, who might think that he or she has been put there to keep you in line. But now you're trying to break the ranks and you have great ideas, but the, the one person that you need to spend most time convincing is actually the person who should just be telling you, yeah, go ahead and try it. Let's try to convince, you know, the, the customer or the end user or, or the patient or, you know, whatever the context might be. And I think it's many organizations struggle with the fact that middle management and certain layers of top management are trying to be experts, subject matter experts, when they instead just should be facilitating the asking of the correct questions and the discussions that need to happen to answer those questions. There are two books at this point I want to recommend. One is Multipliers by Liz Wiseman, and the other one is Loon Shots by Safi Bakal. Both of them speak to these uh, issues very well. Liz Wiseman talks about leaders understanding when they need to step in and when they need to step back and hand back the pen. Your job is to not stop people from failing. Your job is to stop the business from failing. And it's to help the team achieve the outcome that the team, their job to be done. But she says that the trick is to know when they have enough to work out the rest for themselves. And certainly from my training years, the answer was always in the room. If, when I managed to get my ego out of the way long enough and got the, te- the tables to work the solutions out, they always came up with much better ones than me. And I've learned more from them than they ever did from me. Uh, that was the beauty. The other side of this is recognizing that humanity's superpower is our ability to cooperate and communicate. And you know, Gary uh, in the green room was talking about wanting to, to leave uh, the legacy of what he's learned and pass that on. I feel very much the same way because it seems so wasteful to take 30, 40 years of experience and then not bottle it and pass it on so people can grow and develop it from there. Now, I think one of the most interesting shifts is where you get management to recognize that their job is not to do It's not to decide, it's to delegate. It's to enable and empower their people to come up with the solutions themselves. And one of the things that you did, Patrick, which I thought was just magnificent and could probably only happen in Scandinavia, is you had these managers of the gap. Can you talk about that? Yeah, Yeah, no, that was interesting. Um, I was involved in a project uh, at this little city, Helsingborg, that had this really outspoken and explicit uh, goal to use innovation to solve you know, the problems of the future. And one area we identified was that, and you were speaking of silos before, and of course, the larger the organization, the more complex the management structures become, but they are very much organized around the different silos. And the more you know, management heavy and complex become, the more they focus inwards uh, on their own problems. And we identified that most of the problems that uh, the inhabitants of Helsingborg have are not specific to any one of the nine departments. They are just specific to living in Helsingborg. And so those problems or challenges 
would go across the boundaries of the organization. Now, the question, of course, is what are the gaps between these organizations that need to be identified? And I don't know how to explain what we were doing. What we actually were trying to do was identify what dialogues need to occur between the different silos to help address the specific challenges that any one inhabitant or whatever you know problem that might have arisen. How do you identify who those people are and where do they talk? And how do you manage the fact that they are reporting within the silos, but now all of a sudden they are addressing a much more important project or problem, which is in between the silos. And it was really, really great fun to get together a group of people to discuss this because we identified the key sort of stakeholders from all the different silos. Or these were people with project management backgrounds or middle management roles. And it was very easy to identify a lot of gaps and what those gaps entailed. But it was much more difficult to actually establish, okay, so what is the solution for addressing those gaps? I mean, in some organizations, you spend a lot of time working on your your processes and your process owners. And the process owners will sort of go horizontally through the organization And in some organizations, the process owners will have the same mandate as the the managers of the different silos. But then you have this conflict organization like uh, the matrix organizations of the 80s, and uh, which, by the way, some people just call the conflict organization, right? The matrix organization. (laughs) But then again, now this is interesting because this brings back the question of the wicked problem. These obvious, these things which might, should be obvious, but which are difficult to identify, which are what the organization should be talking about all the time, the wicked problem, need a dialogue. And identifying the right people to have that dialogue is incredibly difficult because most of the things that need to be solved are probably in the gaps, which is why they haven't been solved. Because we're all the different departments or, or silos are optimizing their own organizational sort of value creation, whereas the true value being created by the organization as a whole is, of course, uh, in the horizontal. And yes, I think it comes back to, you know, if I if I listen to what you've just said and I listen to what um, Marcus said about the uh, tsunami and the overload, there's two things that come out. Firstly, because of shit, shit, bollocks and silos, there is no interaction in the traditional organization for for the people and i i define them as the people in the second level leadership positions if you look in an organization there are no forums where these people come together to actually talk about the business of the future so you know and these are the people who know and the people who do when i work with senior teams i tell senior teams i'm not interested in you guys because you do fuck all and every time I ask you a difficult question you you defer it to the people who report to you so really the most important people for me in making a strategy are the people below the senior team because they're the people who know and the people who've got to do the stuff when it's decided so they're the people and if I look in traditional management processes there are no interactions where those people are brought together to actually plan for the future. And that is my second thing, and and Marcus has heard me say this before, is in almost all organisations, the um, financial cart is in front of the build the future horse. So financially, 
we have interactions, we have focus, we have uh, KPIs and targets, but these are not leading indicators, these are lagging indicators. And if you look for the leading indicators, if you look for building the future, and if I ask people, where is the interaction where you are talking about how well building the future is going, there aren't any, right? And actually, I've made a 40-year career on being the person and 50% of my utility and value to other businesses is actually bringing people together to have the conversations. So this, this, is, this is the key theme that I'm hearing, which is if you are going to solve wicked problems, the key is to ensure that you're building bridges and you're getting many, many eyes on the problem. And you have to slow right down. You have to get the people who are at the shitty end of the stick involved. And they're the ones who have to inform the decisions that you make. And they're the ones who are actually going to have to be the ones to implement because they are the how to the board's what. I just want to throw one last thing in there, is that bringing these people together requires a set of skills that are often missing in the management team, plus no one person on the senior management team is mandated to bring people together unless you think that is the CEO, and and certainly a lot of CEOs I meet don't think it's their Uh, role or mission to actually facilitate at this lower level. And also, on on to Marcus's point that we're in a different world now with a tsunami, we need to pick up the pace of this management. I would actually say that we need to have strategic discussions once every three months where we decide on or we we decide and we review the top five things that we've got to do together. So not only have we got to pick up the pace of strategic focused decision-making on our focus, the trouble we're having is we've got to pick up the pace of something that doesn't exist. Mm. So it's hard to pick up the pace of something that doesn't exist now. I mean, we can work harder at our weekly shit, shit, bollocks stuff, but actually, it's not. It's got the wrong people in there and the wrong agenda and the wrong mission, and we don't know how to do the other stuff. People don't know how to do strategy. And I know that for sure, because if you go to a senior team and you say to people, how do we build a strategic plan, you will get eight different answers. So my conclusion is there is no consensus on how we come together to identify and solve are wicked problems in most businesses I have been in. You see, that's, isn't that the thing, though? Because I would assume that most management teams, if you interviewed them one, you know, individually and asked them about what are the wicked problems facing your organization, you'll get, you know, two or three suggestions from each individual, but none of them will overlap or few of them will overlap. So there's one challenge is, of course, getting the management team to agree on what is what are the, the wicked problems. And I think that is what they should be doing, defining the wicked problems. But they shouldn't necessarily be solving them because, as you say, there are lots of people uh, in middle management or on the floor or in projects who probably could work together to solve the, the wicked problems. Well, th- this speaks to uh, the work from Clay Christensen. And if uh, you haven't read it, Competing with Luck is a fabulous primer for jobs to be done theory. Another great one is Demand Side Sales by Bob Mester. 
M-O-E-S-T-A. Um, and jobs to be done theory basically says, if you understand the job to be done, then you're looking for the executors, the community who are meant to execute that job. When you identify the job and you identify the community, then all of their illogical behavior seems rational because you understand what they're holding on to, why they're trying to do certain things, why they're working around their technology that you've just spent millions implementing, why they're applying solutions that they were never intended for in different contexts because they have these wicked problems and there is a job to be done. And that's the common thread. That's the red thread that runs through the organization. And when you understand that, it starts to create a framework and a clarity and a timeline. Gary? Yeah. The central issue, though, is the community that can come together to solve these problems Mm -hmm. is not empowered to do so. That's fair. And that... That is where you need, A, the empowerment by some level of alignment with senior management on what the wicked problems are, some level of alignment of of who needs to come together, and then they need to empower that team to come together and actually very often provide facilitation to that team to come together. I'd like to propose an organizational setup. This is an idea I got a few years back, and we discussed it, but we never actually did it. And I'll have to give you the background. So when we started working with establishing an innovation culture in Helsingborg, we started with, you know, like the many people, uh, sort of creating a process and tools for anybody in the organization who had any type of, of idea to get help to formulate that idea and then to have it sort of valued uh, whether or not we should test it. And the instructions to management were to basically allow everything, but you know, make sure that these are very short, agile projects. So if they fail, they fail fast, and then you can put your resources and other things and so on and so forth. And this creates you know, a certain movement and uh, the organization tests it to see if it's for real and does anybody really get to do their, their project and what happens, et cetera. However, if you want to address strategic problems, and as I said, as we I think we agree, we, one object of management is to identify wicked problems and make them, you know, the strategic focal point. Imagine doing the opposite. In this first setup, basically you're you're looking for people, idea bearers, who dare to, you know, walk into Dragon's Den. I we have this problem. This is a solution we propose. We would need this much time and this much money for a first iteration to test it, and it's. I mean, there are lots of people who will do it, but most people actually don't want to walk into the dragon's den because they feel like, you know, it's, it's dangerous and they're going to be made fun of, et cetera. Now, imagine doing the opposite. Imagine the CEO or the, the board of directors of a company uh, in some kind of a televised hackathon-like event telling the organization, we have identified three or nine or whatever, you know, really important things that we need to solve to stay relevant to our customers. Uh, We are looking for people in our organization who are willing to address this or already have ideas, and we will become your champions, right? So Mm -hmm. you're not saying you're going to come to work for me uh, if you're, say, you know, sitting on the board. You're saying, I'm looking for people who want to take ownership of this problem, and I will champion you. Interestingly enough, Patrick, myself and my ecosystem have devised and uh, brought together 
a number of solutions precisely to deliver exactly that outcome. So on that happy uh, note and on that bombshell, uh, we're going to have to wrap up. If you'd just like to make one final point in conclusion, Gary. One final point, just building on, on what Patrick said, is, is what I've always found is the knowledge is deep in the business. And if it comes forward, you can expose it. But you've got to be aware, and I suffer from this myself, is people cannot always articulate themselves as clearly as they would like. And I found management to be impatient and unreasonably impatient that people cannot articulate themselves clearly and people can be dismissed because of their inability to articulate the problem and the solutions they're proposing. And I think that's unfair and a lost opportunity for many, many businesses. Absolutely. Fantastic point. Patrick? If I were to say something in closing, I, I would just say, I hope young people today who are looking to become managers to move into leadership, I hope they understand that they need to develop a sense of, they need to feel confident about their ability to lead without having the answers. It's about helping the organization, organization pose the right questions and feeling comfortable by not having the answer. And, and, and this is a skill called operational coaching, which is being able to coach on the job, in the moment, at the point of need, and coach what you see. And again, managers tend not to do this because they tend to go into solutioning. They tend to answer the question. They tend to uh, give um, direction instead of helping people to solve their own problem. And I think that's a skill that we absolutely have to nurture right from the very earliest stage where the last person in is now going to coach and onboard the next person so that they start developing those skills right from day one. Excellent. Patrick, how can people get hold of you? Well, look me up on LinkedIn, Patrick with the CK and Lindquist with the QVIST. I'm at CGI currently. I love to be in touch with people who want to discuss wicked problems. Excellent. Gary? Yes, yeah, same for me. Gary Mitchell, uh, Strategy Execution. Just put that in the search engine and I'll come up on LinkedIn. Excellent. So. Gary, Patrick, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughsiphonlast.com. And if you're the founder or owner leader of a 20 million plus tech company looking to scale sustainably, uh, make profit, attract people, become a, an employer, destination employer, and to keep your customers for many, many years, then get in touch. Myself and my ecosystem have been putting together some amazing so wicked uh, solutions to wicked problems. So if you want to get in touch, Marcus at laughs-last.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.